Hello and welcome to the Aware Parenting Stories podcast. My name is Joss Golden and I'm so happy that you're here. In this podcast series, I interview people who are passionate about parenting. We talk about many things to do with parenting and motherhood and explore the joys and challenges that we all face in our families. The aim of the podcast is to share more about aware parenting, to inspire us all on our parenting adventures, and to support us all to raise our children with more awareness, connection, and love. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Aware Parenting Stories podcast. Today, I'm back having conversations with my beautiful friend and colleague, Danny. Hi, Danny. Thanks for coming back and having another chat with us. Hi, Joss. Lovely to be here again. So today we are going to finish the conversation that we were having before around the lists of three things that come up a lot in aware parenting as a way to sort of simplify and explain the theory and how we can put it into practice. And we made this big list of three. We were originally going to have it in one conversation. And of course, it's come to three conversations, which is just perfect. (laughs) So funny how it's evolved like that. But yeah, makes so much sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So the first of these last three things that we want to discuss is around the three things that children and we as adults too need in order to sleep. And of course, I'm sure everybody's aware of the Aware Parenting podcast and Marion Rose has just done a beautiful series on there, which I think she's still in the middle of around sleep and lots of conversations with different people about sleep. And she's also just brought out a new course about sleep. So if you want to explore this in more detail, I really recommend going to her her website and seeing what you can find on there and listening to that podcast. But we'll just talk through the three things here too, just in a little bit of detail, just to give you a taste. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk about the first one in that list of three, Danny? Yeah, well, I think first thing that children really need in order to go to sleep is to just feel tired, which is so, I think, stating the obvious. But I think in our culture and when I think about myself as a first-time mum, there was this whole idea that we need to put babies to sleep or we need to put children to sleep, almost like we need to override it and that we need to control when they sleep and how often they sleep and how they go to sleep. And so I think in Aware Parenting, we're really offering that third way, which Marion often says that Aware Parenting is the third way when it comes to sleep. And so we're looking for signs that actually suggest that they are even tired, you know, such as yawning or rubbing their eyes. Often I found like when my girls were starting to get really tired, you know, their little eyebrows would go really red like as they're yawning and it was like I was like okay you know we're starting to understand and learn their cues and then that sort of shifted as I started to get older that sometimes they need to have and actually move things through their body first before they're actually able to even settle down and move into that state of being really sleepy and we're looking for that idea of connecting in with their own feelings of what it feels like to be tired but then also looking and exploring about what happens for us when we feel tired and what are our sleep cues around being tired and do we override them often using a control pattern such as staying up and drinking glasses of wine or eating chocolate or watching Netflix. So I think it's really important for us maybe to start with if we are having sleep issues or problems with our children, even just looking at our own story around what is it that we need to fall asleep. You know, I know lots of people that have to listen to music or a podcast or something in order to actually be able to fall asleep because maybe that natural and intuitive knowing of, oh, I'm feeling really tired and I can just close my eyes and drift off really peacefully doesn't happen so naturally for so many people. 
Yeah, I love how you explain that. And it's interesting that we still talk so much, well, we don't in the aware parenting community, but in our culture around sleep training and this idea that all we need to do is train children and then they'll fall asleep. And I love what you're talking about there because you're talking about us learning to tune into our own cues in our bodies, but also supporting our children to learn to do that as well so that they are aware of when they're tired and what that feels like. And it's like, again, it comes back to that attunement tuning in looking at our children seeing what they what what's there and what the signs might be and of course accepting in aware parenting that just being tired is not enough to fall asleep that there are other parts of that picture too and i just add into that that of course as we go through childhood our rhythms around sleep change and so often in the teenage years for example with the changes in the biochemistry inside our bodies and the timings and the rhythms and the releasing of chemicals to help us go to sleep, that all changes too. So often we see a change in our children at teenage years where they don't want to fall asleep. They're not actually tired till later and then they want to sleep for longer. And often that can be quite hard when people have to get up and go to school the next day. And so they have Mm -hmm. to go to sleep at a reasonable time, but their bodies are actually not ready for sleep until much later. So Mm -hmm. yeah, tuning in for us, observing our children at any age and supporting them to tune in really really important and then of course tuning into ourselves and I'm often really really tired and telling myself I'm gonna have an early night tonight I'm really tired and then I find myself still up at 11 30 so yeah it's an ongoing process learning to tune into that isn't it Mm, I think and it's also if I just think to the lifestyles that we live now like we're so out of our circadian rhythm right like you know normally and often with children like we often see that particularly during daylight saving when there are changes in the light that they often take longer to go to sleep say when it's daylight saving but then as it starts to get darker earlier that they're able to fall asleep a bit early because they're much more connected to that but you know in our homes with our artificial lights and you know on our screens and all those things I think that does create some blockers where it does make us able to stay up later because our bodies are very in tune with that and so I think it is like you said I'm quite similar like some nights I'll say I'm really tired but then you know I start a new Netflix series like you know that's really not conducive to wanting and supporting myself to go to sleep so I think it is that idea of well what can we do to support ourselves more you know those beautiful red lights maybe closing the blinds a bit earlier, like really setting the tone, you know, really starting to create that beautiful space that we can start to really allow our nervous systems to go, actually, we can settle in and have a little rest, yeah. move into sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's all all those other things are so important, part of it, you know, such a big part of the picture. Yeah. All the other things that we're doing in our environment and, and in our bodies and on our bodies that can be impacting sleep. And that might be things like synthetic materials in our in the clothes that we're wearing in bed. It might be endocrine disruptors in the home, like air fresheners, that kind of thing. It could be the products that we use on our body. I mean, so many of us, when I was a child, it was all that baby lotion stuff. I think that was still <laughs> given out when Sol was in hospital. But, you know, those those products contain lots of endocrine disrupting and, and nasty chemicals. So, you know, those sorts of things. And then, of course, EMFs and you're know, making sure we're switching off the Wi-Fi at night. That's really important for ourselves and our children. And yeah, like you say, having blue light to protect your eyes and those sorts of things so yeah there's lots of things to consider aren't there Mm, so many things and I think it's just important to sit with what's important as a family and unpack it what it means for you and yeah what what resonates with you and what doesn't I think that's really really important yeah absolutely so that ties in quite nicely with the second thing that 
our children need in order to fall asleep and us too and that is to feel connected and uh, such an it's so easy when we think about ourselves as as a species as humans that we all would have needed to have closeness and connection with others in order to be safe to go to sleep and that's been the story for the the whole of human history and it's only been in very recent times that there has been this push towards putting children to sleep in cots in separate rooms from their parents and having that that separation and disconnection at bedtime so when we remember how important it is for our children to feel connected we can make a choice about what works well for our family and that doesn't necessarily mean for everybody co-sleeping but it just means being aware of signs of disconnection that our children might be showing us and also just being mindful of their needs for connection so we can offer them more of it just before sleep so that that is meeting those needs for them. Mm. Yeah, so interesting. Like when I think back to Marley when she was a baby and there was this whole idea of needing to put her to sleep and getting so frustrated with her, like if she wouldn't go to sleep and, you know, that, yeah, just feeling really angry almost, like, you know, you need to go to sleep and it's late and, you know, and and being quite like feeling that anger in my body and how much that would have created so much disconnect for her and not surrendering to the health nurses telling me that I can't sleep with her and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then when Kiki coming along going, right, we're all just going to sleep in one room because I need sleep and really surrendering to what they actually were asking of me, which is that connection. And I think over time I've, I've really played with, you know, the other thing that was in mainstream was that we need to dim the lights and play the music and rub the lavender oil and my kids would get out the bath and would go nuts like it was like it reset them and they were wild and I was like but the but the books and all the people are telling me that this is like the calming down time and they don't want to calm down they're actually a bit wild and free during this time and and so really when I found a way parenting I was like oh they need to release all this stuff out of their body they need to play and do the rough and tumble and play games to get into their, you know, into their pyjamas. And, you know, I remember with Kiki playing this beautiful game where she would throw her dog, you know, at the cot. It was the only time she ever went in the cot. We slept all on a floor bed, but she would go into the cot to play this game where she would throw the dog out. She was probably like 13 months and I would throw the dog, her little dog toy back in and she would throw it out and I'd throw it back in. And she would just laugh and it was like hilarious. And then eventually, you know, I'd look for those signs that she was starting to get fired and then we'd, you know, snuggle in and go to sleep together. And so I think there is this natural evolution often when we come to wear parenting of what we heard and being told around what children need for sleep and then really doing what Marion says all the time which is observing our children being the researcher and what do they actually need and often they're kind of telling us like do they need loads of play and do they need the rough and tumble because they have gone a bit wild and they're kind of in that mood and so you know if we go no we're not doing that tonight and it's time for you to go to sleep we're going to be sitting in there for an hour trying to get them to go to sleep. Whereas if we work with their bodies to release and move what they need to, whether that be through this rough and tumble, whether it be through laughter and connection and play, or maybe if often I found that they would hurt themselves when they were doing the play and then they'd have this beautiful big release before bed. And then we just cuddle in and they go to sleep in 10, 15 minutes. So I think it is a little bit of a work in progress because working out what do they need and really working with their bodies to support them the best that we can so that they are really willing to go to sleep and naturally move into that space. 
Yeah, I love that description. That was yeah, yeah, so beautiful. That was perfect. We used to do that too. We used to play a game where in our bed I would be like this, I would roll from one side to the other and try to capture them and roll over them, but they would jump up and roll over me and I would just be this, we used to call it the crushing roller. I don't know why, but anyway, <laughs> it was just a really beautiful, lots of big physical movement. And again, like you say, that contrasts so sharply with the messaging around mm. calm down time. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's so helpful when we can see that. But of course, all of these things require a lot of us. And at the end of the day, we're often really exhausted and just completely burnt out and, and have nothing left to give. So it really does remind us again of the importance of us getting support, us getting listening, us getting spaces to share all the things that come up for us so that we can get really clear that, okay, this is difficult in the family at the moment. There's some challenges around sleep. What's going on? What do I need to bring in more of? And how can I do that? Rather than just like coercing ourselves, oh, we've got to play at bedtime. Okay, let's push through, even though we're really exhausted. Because then often, like you say, things go wrong and they get injured and there's big feelings. And and if we're feeling really exhausted and frustrated, it can be quite hard to respond to that in a really compassionate way. So yeah, I would say around sleep, definitely be getting lots of support ourselves too. Because I mean, often lots of us have got issues and stories and and big memories of, of things being very hard around sleep for ourselves. So yeah, exploring all that too can be helpful. Mm, I love that you brought that in. I think one of the key things that I always found, particularly when they were little and particularly when I was still just starting to listen to feelings and starting to doing, you know, incorporating the play and that idea of lying and connecting is very much around actually napping during the day and having that lie down, whether it was with the girls when they were younger or asking a family member or a friend or a babysitter or someone to come over so that I actually could go and nap and actually teach my body that it was safe for me to fall into a it gave me so much more capacity in the evenings whereas even now if I've had a bad night's sleep and then the girls want to go into play it's hard like we don't necessarily feel like doing the thing that we need to do in order to get them to a space where they are sort of really relaxed and ready to go into a sleeping phase so I think it is really important for us to sort of sit with that and yeah and and find ways to meet our needs like you've suggested because we can't we can't at the end of the night it's really hard to show up and be like yeah I'll play with you and I'll listen to all your feelings or, you know, even sometimes just lying with them. You know, lots of parents have mentioned that, you know, I'm in there for an hour and it's so exhausting and and it is, like it is. At the end of the night, we kind of are ready to have our space, to have our time to ourselves. So I think it is important to sort of build up our capacity during the day so that the evenings are better. And I think also our energy of how we show up in that time, like you mentioned, like if we're just like, oh, I just want this done, you know, I just want them to go to sleep, you know, they feel that. And then they often aren't really willing to do the kind of sense that and that charge around that. And then they aren't willing to fall asleep because they feel our resistance of I just want to get out of here. So I think there is so much for us to unpack and the way that we show up with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and often if we just offer like five minutes of play and then 10 minutes of listening to feelings, then our children will fall asleep straight away. Whereas if we are resistant to it because we're too tired, then it can take like an hour at a time. So um, the only other thing we haven't really spoken about is around babies and sleep. And just to talk a little bit briefly about that when, because often when parents first start listening to feelings, it's the first falling asleep at night that they choose to to use initially to listen to feelings. And often I find it really helpful Well, when my second child was little, but also um, to, to recommend for parents is 
slightly changing up the routine. So you you do your you do your bath and your play and that kind of thing. Then you do your feeding outside of the bedroom. And then once you know that the feed is finished, you go back and you go into the room then and you lie down and you, that's when you listen to feelings. That's what I found really helpful. And then just stay there and let them know that you're right there and listening. And often, of course, if babies are used to falling asleep on the breast, then when you first start not doing that and changing it, there's big, big feelings there. And so Again, just tune into what feels right for you and and what you're observing in your baby afterwards. Like after a big cry, not falling asleep on the breast, are you then noticing that they're sleeping for longer periods? They're not waking so often. Are they more relaxed in their bodies? Are they falling asleep in that beautiful, open, soft, supple kind of way? And just seeing what you might notice there. Do you want to add anything to that, Danny? No, I think that's really beautiful, like as a like a recommendation of a way to start. And I think what I found really useful after that was to just go, if they wait before 10, I'm going to listen more. And if they wait, then I'd stretch it out and then wait before 11 and then wait before 12, you know, having my own limits around what I was, how much capacity I had and how much I was willing to be available during that time. And then slowly it just grew and grew and grew until it kind of got to a point where they were sleeping through or for sleeping for longer blocks or didn't need the breast to go back to sleep. Well, it was really happy just to have like a little cuddle with me and know that I was there and then go back to sleep rather than breastfeeding. So it is a little bit of playing with what feels good as well. Um, but I love that idea of just starting of that change of routine, particularly if they are have that breastfeeding control pattern. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. So yeah. as we said, I really recommend going and listening to Marion's podcast and her sleep yes. series because she she really shares with great wisdom and, and knowledge about all this. So the next thing we wanted to talk about is another beautiful aspect, which is the three things that we can do when we respond to our children harshly, or we react in ways that aren't really aligned with how we want to be a parent, which we all inevitably do at times. And often this is something that parents really struggle with initially because they just go into so much guilt and shame and self-judgment big big feelings anyway in response to that when this happens and this is something that we're both really passionate about mm. supporting parents to understand first of all the the normality of it happening for all of us regardless of how long we've been practicing aware parenting and regardless of of how much work we've done ourselves it does come up and so First, I think that first step in how to respond is is real compassion and kindness towards ourselves and and acceptance that this is this is part of parenting. Mm, I love that, and I think it's it's so true. Like I think particularly when we've come from sort of upbringings where maybe we were sort of holding and owning our parents' r- responses. So, for example, if they did shout at us, often we were the ones that had to apologize to them because we had made them really angry, which is, you know, that old sort of parenting paradigm that that lens of children being manipulative and naughty, right? Like that where they're acting out in that way. It can feel really uncomfortable in a sense to then, you know, we're, we're acting in this way, but then we're also coming in and offering a, a repair to them. So we've got to kind of sit and unpack that a little bit. But I think what's really beautiful is, you know, we all are working from the best intentions and with what we have in order to be able to show up 
for them. And we're all going to have moments, like you said, where, you know, we behave in ways that don't feel good or move into things that don't feel good. And the idea is, you know, we're not trying to say, yes, it's okay to do that. We want to obviously get to that place where we've done a lot of inner work so that we're not doing that all the time. But inevitably, things are going to happen when we're coming from these really sort of traumatic childhoods on different levels for different people, that we are going to show up in ways and at times where it doesn't feel good in our bodies. And I think that's really important that we own that and go, it doesn't mean we're a bad parent. It doesn't mean we're not aware parenting. You know, I remember one of uh, talking to Marion in, in very early days of me doing aware parenting and saying to her something along the lines of like, you feel like when I shout or when I'm angry or when I do something like that, then I'm, you know, I'm not doing aware parenting. And she's like, but you are doing aware parenting because you're conscious of the fact that you're actually behaving that way. And I think that was, for me, was a huge shift in my, my lens of what aware parenting is. It's like, we still have this awareness, right? That we've done something that's not enjoyable. And now we can go back and offer, which is the next thing we're going to talk about this idea of repair. But I think it's important to go, oh, okay, I've just acted in a really, you know, I've just behaved in a really enjoyable way gosh, okay, what am I needing or what's happening for me? Yeah, I'm really tired or I really need to eat or, you know, I've got really big feelings about something that's going on for me personally. I need to go and get some listening around that or I really need some space. I need some time away. Okay, this is what's happening for me and I can hold myself in compassion. Wow, I'm really doing the best that I can at the moment and sort of restart to almost restart to like bring our nervous system back down and go, wow, okay, this is where I am right now. Mm, yeah, I love how you describe that, Danny. And I think, you know, so many of us as children were responsible when thing when there was times of conflict or, or rupture in our homes. And ma- many of us never received an apology either, or even an acknowledgement at times of conflict of how that might have impacted us. And so there's no model there for us about how to show up and apologize. And I love how this this beautiful approach gives us this this way, this way yeah. to do this. And, you know, that really resonates for me as well, what you were saying around your conversation with Marion back in the early days for you, because I think I hear that so much from clients. I'm not even doing aware parenting. I'm not even, I feel like, I don't even know why I'm having a session with you because I feel like I'm not even an aware parent at all anymore. And yeah, I love this, this perspective that actually the key word there is awareness. And so, you know, the more that we are bringing our awareness to what's going on and what we're not enjoying about how things are, the more we are aware parenting, because that is then inviting us to, to bring more compassion and then to, to do things differently. So yeah, I love how you explained that. And just to say as well, that we can't be the parent we want to be and always responding in alignment mm-hmm. if we are coercing ourselves to just do better. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. That's so if we are rupturing with our children and then going into all that judgment and fame and beating ourselves up about it and, oh, my God, I'm a terrible parent and all that stuff, which I've done plenty of times in my life, that just creates more disconnection more and more painful feelings that we're not really going into. Whereas instead, when we offer ourselves real compassion in there, real acknowledgement of how things are and just bringing our awareness to what's going on, then we can come back to actual connection and making it good again. Mm, Yeah, I love that. That's so beautiful and so true. 
So the first thing that we do then after we have connected in with ourselves and offered ourselves compassion, that might be in in the moment if our kids are a bit older, or that might be something that we have to come back to if our kids are little. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it's just taking a second to offer yourself some compassion, it, it's really helpful. Then what do we do? So we go in and we rewind. And, and what, what does that look like for you, Danny? that first step with your children? Yeah, I think my first step is sometimes, I mean, now that they're a bit older, I, I do probably just go out the room for a second and just take a deep breath and go, this is not about them. This is, you know, this is about me, like you mentioned, and I'm going to unpack that later. And um, Or I can just acknowledge what it is. And then I come back in and I say, you know, something along the lines of like, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that I just shouted if it was shouting. And I'm wondering how that makes you feel. How's that feel for you? And often that will lead into lots of crying because I don't shout very often anymore. There, you know, there are times where I do, but not really like big shouting. And so, you know, they will just have really big releases and I just sit and listen and I'm like, yeah, I hear you and I'm here and I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. And really giving lots of connection if they're willing. Sometimes it does take a bit of time, like, you know, that safety has been broken in this moment. So they have to learn again that I am in a safe place to come and have a cuddle and be with me and so sometimes it is a little bit of a dance it's a little bit of moving in and if they're like no you know get away and so then it's like okay yeah and you know sort of moving in and out until we kind of get to that place where we've moved those feelings and we have a really big cuddle and then what I tend to do is at some point a bit later on so not in that moment but a little bit later I'll often have a conversation and say you know I'm really sorry that I shouted earlier and, you know, I know that you don't enjoy it. And I'm, you know, I'm wondering if you have anything else you wanted to share with me about that. You know, how does it make you feel? And they've come out with some really big things. Um, Kiki once said to me, it makes me feel like you don't love me anymore. And that broke my heart because it really brought up a lot around what I actually felt about my own parents. You know, when they shouted at me or hit me or did all those things, it really made me feel like they didn't love me. And so then we have a really big, you know, chat around how much I love and adore her. And that's, you know, that's, I don't want her to ever feel that way that I really do love her, but I really hear her. And it is scary when someone moves in like that. And then I have a conversation usually around why I'm acting that way. And, you know, often if it's my bleed time or maybe, you know, we'd had a bad night's sleep, not trying to rationalize why I'm doing it, but just to give them some honesty around it as well, you know. I'm feeling, you know, this is not about you. It's all about me. But, you know, I'm I'm feeling like I'm really tired and I'm really sorry that you received that side of it. And I'm going to work really hard to make sure that I don't do that again. And if I do, you know, I will repair with you and I want you to know that I always love you. And it's not about you. It is about me. And I'm always making that really clear because I don't want them to carry what I carried, which was very much that idea of my parents' feelings were my responsibility. And I don't want them to have that. Mm. I love how you describe all that. I'm just imagining being your kids for a minute and what it would feel like to be responded to in that way. And yeah, I love that. I really, I really love how you describe that. What what I always do still, and as they get older, it becomes more important in a way, is start off by asking, are you willing to rewind with me? Because often as they're older, they're not willing. They've got big, big feelings about it. And probably if you've gone into rupture, it's because often there's big feelings either from them or from you or both. And yeah. so, yeah, giving them that time and that autonomy mm-hmm. over the process is really, really helpful. 
And and that's like that's like an invitation to them, isn't it? It's I'm inviting you to reconnect with me. Are you ready? And it's just it's really beautiful for them to get to to have some control. It's sort of like a power reversal immediately from from what's happened, which is often quite powering over of them. And I loved how you talked about that reconnecting and just explaining what had happened and and getting the opportunity to share, having it acknowledged that what has happened has an impact on them and wasn't wasn't pleasant experience for them. And then, like you say, being there to hear whatever it is that they might bring to us. And again, if we haven't done that self-connection, even if it's just for a moment before we go in, often when we go in and they they say something harsh about how the experience was for them about us or something painful, we don't want to be pushed back into that reactive mode either. So yeah, sometimes we are required in the moment to be giving ourselves some compassion too when they're saying things like, I really hate you or you love you love him more than me or whatever it is that they might be saying that could be quite hurtful. So yeah, we are called upon to to keep offering ourselves that compassion to stay on track. And one of the things that I found really helpful is to, when the kids were little, to empower them with like a, a safe word. We came up as a family with this word that they could use as a way of basically saying when I was getting angry with them, pause, mum, please, can you pause for a moment because Mm -hmm. I'm not enjoying the way you're speaking to me. And so that can be a really empowering thing for our children to learn how to do because that helped me to stay connected with what I truly want to be doing in my interactions with them. And it also empowered them in the moment when they were probably feeling overpowered with harshness to actually have the the choice, the option to say, no, I'm I'm not willing for you to speak to me like that. Or, Mm. you know, this doesn't feel good or please stop mummy or whatever it is that works in your family. And I found that really lovely. And I just think it it provides the whole process provides such a beautiful space for our children's voice to be heard, Mm. for us to acknowledge the impact on what's happening. And so often I say to parents, this process, especially like you're saying, when we have these beautiful conversations afterwards, these really deep connecting conversations about what was going on for us, about them not being responsible for our feelings. And at the end of that process, there's actually a real deepening in your relationship, in your connection, in your understanding of each other. So actually these moments, even in the moment of of conflict, it's painful and messy and it feels yucky. And sometimes we have this tendency to go, oh, I'm such a terrible aware parenting or our family's so far from what I want it to be or or, all of those stories. Actually, at the end of this process, everybody feels so loved and so closely connected with each other. So it's actually, there's a gift in there too and a deepening in that. And I love, Aletha says this quote that I, I bring out a lot because I really like it, that a sign of a healthy family is not one that's free of conflict. It's one where the conflict is handled in a way that leaves everybody feeling loved. And I think that is exactly what we're trying to do with this rewind repair in, in rupture times. Mm. Oh, that's like the silver lining, isn't it? Like it really is, you know, and I also deeply trust that sometimes these things happen for those exact reasons that we can come in with this beautiful repairing and then heal part of the relationship and find that depth as well. Oh, so beautiful. I loved everything you shared there. I love the idea of a safe word. I never thought of that. I think that's really, really powerful. I think that would be amazing for our children to have reclaimed some of that, like to actually go, this doesn't feel safe at the moment. Like that's a no for me. And so, you know, just like we do with them, right? Almost like sitting, setting a bit of a loving limit. Yeah. Um, I love I love what you shared around, particularly as they're getting older. As a teenager, I'm just thinking back to my teenage self. Like there was never any 
discussion around did I want to I mean not that they ever repaired but you know it was always me having to go to them but no one ever came to me and said do you feel like you want to connect now or do you want the space you know I think that's really beautiful and even even when they're little to start really offering that to them and saying sorry that I acted that way and I really want to repair with you but does it feel good to do it now or do you need a bit of space and even if they can't respond in that moment you know based on their responses we can kind of get a gist of or maybe they just need a little bit of time to process and you know maybe I've kind of done that without the asking but just seeing it in the energy of like okay now you know I can see that it's probably more Marley as well needs a bit of space just to be with it and when she's ready she'll come not leaving her but just moving back and sort of sitting so I think that's so beautiful that's a beautiful for offering for people that are maybe playing with this idea of how do we repair and something else that came up for me as you were sort of talking was you know when I first started doing the repair there was a lot of like the I'm so sorry I'm so sorry oh my gosh please forgive me please forgive me I didn't want to do that like a lot of that over trying to overcompensate and I think that really comes you know that really to me reads we really need to unpack why we're doing the apology because we don't want our children to go oh I forgive you mum to make ourselves feel better about the situation we need to come from that place like you said which is really embodied of there actually is a silver lining when we behave in these ways around you know we're doing something we don't want to do but we're also doing this beautiful repair and we're teaching them that we're human and that we make mistakes and we own our mistakes but if we're sort of coming in with this need for them to go it's okay and cuddle us and connect with us I would say there's probably a bit of an inner part of us that needs to kind of be sat with and explored and unpacked a bit and for me there definitely was in those early days because I was so scared that they would stop loving me and if I look at that I go what was that about well there were so many times in my own childhood where, you know, I didn't act in a way that was my parents liked and then they would withdraw love from me. And so it made sense now, you know, I'm trying, you know, a big thing with you in in a way parenting with, with clients, you know, with parents that we support is like, I just don't want to cause them damage. You know, I just don't want them to hold. And so we hold on to this idea of like, if we do anything wrong, then we're going to create a, you know, this big rupture and they're not going to love us and they're going to separate from us. When really we're sort of shifting that to, we do make mistakes, right? We're, all human we're not going to be perfect and then we can come in with this beautiful repairing process that then allows them to go yeah mum is or dad is human they do make mistakes but they do love me and what has happened has nothing to do with me and the way that I've acted it's all to do with stuff that's really happening for them so I think identifying the way in which we actually show up and respond to the in the repairing is really important as well Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I've done that Yeah, as my kids have got older, that initial sort of, are you willing to reconnect thing via text message? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if my daughter's taken herself off, she's annoyed with me and she's upset with me and whatever, she takes herself away and I go and knock on the door and she's really not willing yet. Then sometimes I've, I've sent her a text message and at times it's, you know, I've just said, I, I'm sorry that that will I remember sending her a message not that long ago, just saying, "I'm yeah, sorry, that all went really pear-shaped quickly and um, I apologize. And when you're ready to rewind, I'm here. And and then, you know, she came out, I don't know, 15 minutes later and then we had this beautiful reconnection, this really lovely conversation. But sometimes it's, it's through text when they're older. And I want to talk as well a little bit about play and bringing play into the rewind because sometimes that reconnection process requires some play to... Yeah 
provide that sense of emotional safety again and to bring some lightness to the vibe. So I find that really helpful moving in with play. It might be especially play where you're being really silly. It could be play where you literally replay the situation, but really exaggerate and change up the way that you responded. It could be that you give them like a remote control and they get to sort of rewind you physically with that with that toy or, you know, there's lots of lovely ways that you can bring play in to support that process. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I thought about when when you were speaking was that stuff around our stuff coming up. And that's that was definitely true for me, that kind of overcompensating, that over-apologizing, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so, which is just a, it's just burdening our children further. So mm-hmm. that's the stuff we take to our listening partner, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I loved what you were saying too about it, because I think what we're doing is we're really modeling to our children that imperfection is okay. Um, yeah. So we're not going to beat ourselves up about it and we're not going to go on and on about how terrible we are. We're just going to acknowledge, yep, yeah, we made a mistake. Yes, we got overwhelmed. Yes, we responded in ways we don't want to. Yeah, we're going to keep trying to get more support so that we don't do that. But it's also okay because we're all mm-hmm. going to be imperfect at times. And I love the message that that gives our kids too. I love that. And I think the other thing that as you're sort of speaking that out loud, I'm like, it's just role modeling that anger is actually healthy. And I think that's often an imprint or a story or a core belief system that we may have. You know, anger means we're bad, that we're bad people and we're bad parents and that we're not worthy of having children. You know, those things that we're told that anger is it's terrible and it's not right and really anger has is this sort of I'm using anger because it's like the one word but really under that sits a lot of other things around feelings and needs of resentment and grief and frustration and overwhelm and exhaustion and all those little pieces that come sort of under the anger but I think what it actually is doing is changing the whole story that our children will learn around what it means to be angry and what it means when we do act in ways that have outrage or overwhelm or aggression or that we can actually in that moment be that way but also move into this repair and show them that it is normal like it is normal for us to do that and often we've grown up in houses where it's either been really aggressive and it's come out in really unhealthy ways towards children or it's completely suppressed and it's like we don't even show any anger whatsoever and so as you sort of said earlier around, there's no sort of model of how we do this repair. There's also no model of what it means to be healthy in anger. And so I think this is really unpacking that for our children, that that it is healthy to move into these ways, like you said, and that we're not, we're not going to be perfect and be like good little parents all the time. And I think there's a beautiful quote, which I always repost of Aletha's that says, in children's eyes, mothers move from being goddesses or moving from monsters into goddesses or goddesses into monsters. And it's true. Like one minute we're like loving on them and everything's amazing and then the next minute we, you know we move into rage and they they don't know the difference but I think it's for us to sort of unpack that and explain it and as they get older you know we get to do all these other beautiful things like write notes and send texts and it doesn't have to always be in that sort of typical way but we do move between these two phases and I think it's really important because it normalizes that that is actually what happens for everyone that when they move into rage or into to joy and happiness that, that it's all just part of being human basically yes absolutely I love how you describe that and if we're trying in a way parenting to be welcoming all feelings, then that means all feelings and that means <laughs> feelings in ourselves too. And so if we're going into that blame and beating ourselves up, then then we're really not 
not welcoming the fact that we have rage sometimes, like big, big rage. And and these things are a really beautiful opportunity then to see that we we need some more support. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we've got lots of unmet needs. Maybe we're telling ourselves all kinds of unenjoyable things. Maybe we've got lots of big feelings that are sitting there that are being touched by their behavior or by something that's going on in the moment. And so, you know, again, it's a real invitation for us to be getting more support. And then the more support we get, the less likely it is that we're going to go into this big rupture with our children and we find other ways to express our feelings and to get listening. But, you know, it, it really starts with giving ourselves compassion and acceptance and and putting down those sticks of, of blame and, and shame and harshness to, and judgment of ourselves, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and modelling that to our children then too, Yeah. Yeah, and I think this moves really beautifully into our next last little one of the threes, which is all about compassion, which is what we've just been talking about, like what, you know, that it's so important and it's such a core part of the whole aware parenting, reparenting process that we can't really do any of this without holding compassion for ourselves. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yeah, such a big one. So the the reason why we added this to the list is is because it's something that we're really really passionate about. But also because in a way there's three elements to compassion too. One is you know offering compassion to our children, which many of us learn to do early on in the aware parenting process. The next is offering compassion to ourselves that often takes a bit longer for us to learn. And the third is around offering that compassion to to other people. That might be our partner, that might be our parents, that might be our boss, that could be anyone. But, you know, really, it it all starts with this process of, of learning to offer compassion and listening to our children, which is really the central thing about aware parenting, isn't it? Mm. Uh, The most important part of it. So, what, what would you like to say about that process for you about that? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm thinking that when I first started aware parenting, I probably wasn't very compassionate with myself. And I think it was through Marion Rose and a lot of her work. And I think we spoke about that in the last episode of the three, like very much about really unpacking why that is in our internal dialogue and a lot of her work around like loving being a mother and transformations through mothering all her courses around really unpacking why it is that we find it so difficult to love ourselves I think that was a massive part of my and un- un- sort of unraveling why I wasn't compassionate the other part was just having sessions with an instructor in this ongoing way so you know at that time it was Lael where I I sat on her couch like every fortnight I think it was for like six months and just unpacked all parts of my childhood and you know the stories I was telling myself and, and what was I making it sort of mean and then coming in and hearing for the first time someone offer me compassion in a completely different way and I'd never really received anything like that in all of my years of life in general and and working with some therapists along the way I'd never received compassion like that just compassion for in the sense of what would my own inner loving mother and father say to me in these moments where I felt lots of pain as a child but also just equally compassion for what I was doing in the moment with the girls and why it was so difficult and still receiving love. And I think the thing that really resonated for me was if I am going to love my kids unconditionally and accept all parts of them and love them regardless of how they show up in the world and that they may choose things that 
are different to what I believe in or different to what I envisage them doing, how can I sort of offer that to them if I'm not even doing it to myself? If I don't love all parts of me, if I don't accept that I'm complex and imperfect and going to make mistakes and I really have to love all those parts of myself as well and I think once I started to really sit with that and and feel into that I started to come up with ways to offer myself that compassion in the moment and it's it's been a work in progress but I I suppose in the beginning one thing and this was also through Marion's work like one thing that really helped me was like having little sticky notes around the house that would remind me of what I want to say to myself in those moments or looking at a specific piece of jewellery. So it was very, it needed to be something very real for me because I just didn't have any internal dialogue that was like, you're actually a loving, worthy, amazing person. So it, it was starting off like that. And then over time, as I started to do and say these things more to my children, I actually realized that I was actually saying a lot of them to myself at the same time. So there was this like dual process of, you know, when I'm sitting with the girls and I'm saying, I'm here with you and I see it's really big for you and I see you and I'm here and I love you. And, you know, and then it's like, well, actually I'm offering those inner parts of me, those words as well. And then the more that I started seeing how amazing it was, the shifts were in them the more I was like, yeah, this is happening for me and I'm unpacking what it means for me and shifting all of that as well. And this parallel journey that I always speak to really started to become clear. And and now I'm really feeling that after, you know, this has been, Marley's going to be seven this year. And I think in the last six months, I have, I really see how much this process and everything we've sort of spoken about today, you know, that repairing, that showing up as we are and letting them show up as they are and really that so much can shift when we're willing to lean in and offer them what they need but also offer ourselves what we need. But that comes with needing to be willing to lean into all the different pieces around support and whatever that looks like for each person. Yeah. Absolutely. I so agree with everything you just said. It's so lovely. And I think it is interesting how the same was true for me. I really needed to be receiving compassion myself Mm -hmm. from an instructor, from Marion doing work with her and doing her courses and through listening partnerships Mm -hmm. in order to really understand what that sounds like. And then through ongoing listening partnerships, it really enabled me to practice what offering compassion look like offering it to somebody else. Cause I mean, often people say with listening partnerships, I don't have anything to give. I, I, I just need someone to listen to me, but I don't feel like I have anything left to give, but actually the giving and the practicing of the giving is so powerful in terms of mm-hmm. us learning to offer it both to our children and to ourselves. And I love what you were saying about it all just being really about being kindness. And, and if we are wanting to be accepting and welcoming of all feelings in our children and loving them unconditionally, regardless of how they're behaving, doesn't mean that we accept their behavior, but it does mean that we always offer them that unconditional love in response, then we need to be doing the same for ourselves as well. Yeah. yeah. And it, that's such a big thing to learn. And I loved how you were finding those ways that were really individual, tailored to you, that were tangible to be able to help remind you in the moment to be offering that to yourself. And yeah, love to invite people listening to think of ways that you might might help you to stay on track with that. And I also had like a note, I had a note written on the mirror in, in my room and I used to go in and, and read that and 
have my hand on my heart and just just be tuning in and giving myself some kindness. Clients often say, how? How do we do this? How do we speak with ourselves in this way? And it, it is a tricky thing to unlearn, but often I just think about it, you know, what would I say to my best friend in this moment? How would I respond to them? And I loved what you were saying too about imagining our younger parts when we're offering real compassionate kindness to our children, imagining at the same time our younger parts receiving that too is really therapeutic. I've I've loved that too. Yeah. What about the process of learning to offer it to others? Because it's easier. It's easier. Um, I mean, I yeah, I found it easiest to offer to my kids and then I slowly learned to offer it to myself but I I think it's still a work in progress learning to offer it to my husband or to my parents or to other people how's that process been for you I think the listening partnership was a really beautiful one and I'm glad I I forgot to bring that up because I think that is such a good place to practice like you said I've had lots of different listening partnerships all over the place but I think that's really important to keep practicing it and sometimes your listening partner shows up with something that may really activate you and you're like okay how can I be really compassionate for this person even though that's maybe not aligning with me or whatever and so there's that practice all the time of showing up and coming from that real heart-centered place I think it's also been you know sitting in in circles has really helped like showing up in places and listening to other women and that's being a facilitator but also just being a participant circle can be really triggering like lots of people bring up stuff there and they're not necessarily you know in the beginning when I went to circles that weren't aware parenting there was lots of stuff around parenting and what they were doing with their kids and that brought up lots of stuff for me you know and so I had to sit with that and go well how can I love this person even though they're doing something that I really don't align with right so I think it is this idea of practicing and really trying to see the why behind people are doing what they're doing I think can be really important but I kind of feel like for me in terms of where where it went it was like I definitely think I was very compassionate with the girls and and I was learning to do it with myself. And then my partner in that, it took a little bit longer because I was kind of doing, well, I'm doing all this stuff and this is what I hear a lot. You know, I'm doing all this amazing, I'm packing and I'm being with the kids and I'm listening and I'm playing and I'm doing all my inner work. And then we kind of look over there and we're like, well, you're not doing anything, right? Like nothing's shifting for you. And so we had to have some really open conversations you know and I call them conscious conversations around like you know I really want you to come on this journey and I want you with me and you know I chose you and I love you and I'm really willing for you to move some of this stuff and having that compassion I've realized over time that they move in their own way and with their own pieces and it doesn't look the same as what I'm doing but that's okay and really accepting that he is who he is and he's showing up for the girls in ways that I don't with other things and that's okay that we can actually be different and I think there's there's a beautifulness in that because we often want them to be the same as us and I just think it's really unrealistic they are not wired from a brain capacity the same way that we are right and often we're at home all day with them and they're the ones that need to go out and work and so there's stuff there so I think it it took me a while to find that compassion with him but I think it's through having these beautiful vulnerable open conversations that I was really able to sort of maybe hear things from a bit a different perspective for him that really allowed me to have the compassion to go okay that's where he is and then it kind of became I could be compassionate towards the dog and their feelings and the cat and their feelings. And all of a sudden, you know, you know, you can kind of see people listen to their story and there is always a reason why people are doing things. And I think if we always can see what those underlying 
feelings and needs are, we can move into a lot more compassion. And it doesn't mean I'm always 100% in compassion. There are times where things have activated me and I've come from a really activated space that didn't hold compassion for the situation at all I think the difference is though that I would I would often walk away from that and go okay there are big things for me here and I go away and I have to unpack that with a listening partner or you know with someone or journaling or sort of sitting with what it is to then come back and go and apologize and do the repair and go I'm sorry and it wasn't coming from a very grounded compassionate space and then sort of saying but I can see X, Y, and Z and Y and, and all that sort of stuff and working our way through it. I think it is that the more that we practice it for ourselves and our children, the more we learn to be compassionate with all other people. And likewise, you know, as you said, with parents, I think in the beginning I was really angry and I think we have to go through a process where we grieve that. We grieve maybe what we didn't receive and we feel that rage and feel that anger. But as I've also started to sit with that and hear about my own parents' upbringing and what that was like for them and their parents and, you know, all the different layers in there, I I do think on some level they were more conscious than the parents that came before them and they did the best that they could for that their time with their openness and their consciousness within that, their awareness. And so there is compassion because what they experienced was some really traumatic things. And so I think when we can unpack it like that and see people as to why they are showing up the way they do, there is a, there is a way to be compassionate with them if we're willing to look at it through that lens. Oh, yeah. I mean, aware parenting teaches us so much about humans, doesn't it? It really helps us to understand that so deeply about how we work, about our thoughts and our, our needs and our, our feelings, about our stories and our experiences and how they all impact us. And so often as we learn more, about it and we embody it more ourselves we we it does become easier to to offer that to others but there is this real part about tending to ourselves in it too so if we're having interactions mm. with other people we really do need to take time to to unpack and be aware of the big stuff that's coming up for us in order for us to then be able to reconnect and offer compassion to others and we really do need to be comes back again to us needing to do our work we need mm. to be healing our our younger parts we need to be noticing and and it's not that we have to go back to every bad experience we've ever had in our lives we just we need to bring our awareness to when our behavior or our responses to other people's behavior is bringing up big reactions in us and then taking time to go explore with a bit of curiosity what what's underneath there and what we need to tend to and then it's just this virtuous circle and I don't really like that word but it's just you know it's it just gets easier and easier the more we do that and the more listening for ourselves and healing ourselves we get the easier it is to be compassionate to ourselves and to our children and to our partners and to our parents and and that just gets easier and easier but there are times when it's deeply painful our interactions with other people and so we just have to give that pain some space yeah I love the way you explain that process and I think something else that I've definitely played with sort of over the last few years is when we are really compassionate people bring you a lot of stuff like even people out in if you go to a local homeschooling meetup and like you know people feel your energy like if you are if you've got this openness to listen and to you know be compassionate all of a sudden you're you're everywhere and you know people are just coming up and they're telling you things and so I 
I've sort of had a few experiences recently where I've had to go, actually, I need to have some boundaries about what it actually means to offer the compassion that we can be really compassionate and kind of go, oh, that sounds really hard. We don't need to hold it all of the time for everyone. And I think that's really important is like, where do we want to actually offer this compassion to a really beautiful place, you know? more in our children, more in our home, more with our listening partnerships, with close friends, people that are really meaningful, but also to be aware that when people are gravitating to us to tell us all of their stuff, it is important to have some boundaries and it's okay to not go, oh, well, let me sit here and listen to you for an hour after school drop-off because that's really important. Is it really important, right? Like really identifying. And I think that's really it has been a key part for me as as I've sort of grown my capacity to offer compassion and to hold and to listen and be in these spaces that there needs to be a limit. And, it, you know, equally when I was running circles in the beginning, like I have no boundaries with time and like let people just talk about whatever they need to talk to and take up a lot of time and then, you know, other people don't get to share we run over and now it's like yeah I'm offering this beautiful space but there needs to be a bit of structure around how long people can share for so that it is fair for everyone and it's not using up my time so I I don't know I just felt called to share that because I do think as we grow people sense that within us as well yeah well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important. And when you work like professionally as, as an instructor or, or in some other role where you're supporting people professionally, there is this thing, compassion fatigue, you know, it's, it's an understood yeah. thing that so it really does require us to be reflecting uh, on, on what's coming up for us and what whose responsibility the feelings are and and all those different sides. And, and in the end, it just comes back that we need to be receiving compassion if we're going to be offering it really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, that was the key thing is to have support. We need support if we're going to be giving support and compassion to others. It's really important. Beautiful. Mm. I mean, we could talk about compassion for ages and we'll probably do other episodes about it, but is there anything else you want to say now, Danny? I'm just aware of the time. so. No, I just think that um, if this is new to you or you're just starting out, how can you in, in, in the moments where it feels really big, how can you offer yourself more compassion? What would it look like in that moment to receive compassion? And how can you love yourself more? What mm. can you do to really show your body and your soul and just the person that you are, the love that you truly deserve? Yeah, I love that. And then from that, I would love to invite people early in the process to be thinking, can you pause more rather than reacting to their behavior? And just ask yourself for a moment, is, is what I'm about to do going to be received in a compassionate way by then or not and of course there's sometimes when we can't and that's when all the beautiful stuff around repair and reconnection comes in but when we can it's a really powerful way to to be offering more compassion to our kids yeah that's so beautiful Thank you so much, Danny. I love these conversations. They're so nice. We could go on and talk for hours. So looking forward to the next one. And if people want to find out more about you, I put the, the description of your website and your social media links in the, in the show notes. But yeah, if anybody wants to reach out to us, please do. If there's something else that you'd like us to talk about, let us know. I think we're going to talk finally about siblings, having talked about talking about siblings for ages, but we are going to talk about you. So thank you for the person yeah. who asked that. And I'm sorry it's taken us so long to get to it. But if there's anything else you'd like us to talk about, please let us know because we would love this to be really helpful for people. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joss. I love being in this space with you and just love our conversations. And yes, we could talk for hours. And I just love that we're both so passionate about aware parenting. So it's just such, it's so easy to be here. So thank you. No.
So much love to everybody. Thank you for joining me on Aware Parenting Stories. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more, please visit my website, www.awareparenting.com.au and follow me on social media at Aware Parenting with Joss. I wish you much connection and love on your parenting adventures. Mm -hmm.